what a blessing. <clears throat> what a blessing. Turn with me in your Bibles, the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to preach, I guess preach, teach. This morning, in a way I normally don't. I normally don't do a topical type of message, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, I want to lay a groundwork for the doctrine of sanctification. We're going to do an overview of, of the doctrine of sanctification this morning. And I know you want to do a spiritual awakening. This is a spiritual awakening conference. And this is, comes across more as a teaching type of message. But I want you to understand, unless you have the proper theological foundation, everything else built on top of it can be wrong. And so all the emotion, all the desire, all the passion, all the things that you want to do in your heart, if, if you don't understand the foundation, Satan can take you off in wrong directions. And, and we have seen that in the theological movements in the United States. Not only in the movements, but the reactions to the movements. In fact, if you take a look at the history, every, and I think, I think I could say this true, every revival at some point got derailed. It got corrupted. Because Satan always gets in there and he always does these types of things. And so it's important that we have the proper knowledge upon which to build um, our theological and our, our, and our Holy Spirit relationship experience. So let's stand together. We're just going to read this verse. Just one verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning of verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, because beloved of the Lord... Uh, excuse me, beloved brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will use me this morning as your mouthpiece to speak your word, to lay a proper foundation in the hearts of these young people, in their minds. Lord, transform their thinking, transform my thinking. Ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was a child of the Christian school movement. I grew up in church. My earliest memories are of church and uh, uh, church nurseries. I think that the church nursery was my earliest memory. It was years ago I was traveling on a drama team with uh, Nicky Chavers. Some of you folks know who Nicky Chavers is. I was traveling on his drama team and we had gone to Temple Baptist Church in Omaha, Nebraska. And Temple Baptist Church is where my mother was uh, in the youth group when she was was younger and I remember walking into the nursery and realizing oh wow I was in the nursery here when I was really small because <clears throat> the chairs were the same <clears throat> uh, we moved to Arizona and got involved in planting Tri-City Baptist Church which was in Tempe at that time uh, later moved to Chandler we were there actually for the very first service I grew up in under Pastor Singleton, Dr. Um, Jim Singleton. And so grew up there, was going to public school until I was in sixth grade. Um, it, it was at that point that I asked my parents, I knew there was something wrong, 
spiritually. I could see what was happening in the schools and, and the environment I was going to face going into junior high. I asked my parents going into junior high if I could go to a Christian school. And so we started traveling quite a, quite a distance, actually, in those days uh, to travel to a Christian school. And so I went to Christian school. Um, first of all, out of a spiritual desire in my own heart. Now, there were times, ups and downs during those early years. I remember <clears throat> I had a cousin that was um, into some real spiritual problems, and my parents, they decided that they were, his, his parents decided to send him to our Christian school so he came to live with us, so he could go to the Christian school with us. It's not the best idea to bring a, a junior in high school who's a real rebel and put him in the same bedroom with your junior high young person. Uh, that was not, I didn't realize what a poor spiritual influence he had been in my life. But, you know, I grew up going to Christian schools, sitting in chapels, listening to preaching, went away to Bible college, listening to the preaching, not sure where I was going to go and, you know, what, what God was going to do with me one day. Finally, God put me in ministry. God put me in, I, I, I was a Bible major, public speaking, speaking major. I was trying to decide between seminary and law school. That's what I was thinking about doing. <clears throat> Finally decided I was going to go to seminary. Ended up at Calvary Baptist Seminary in Lansdale, PA. Um, got my MDiv. From there, I, we were trying to decide what to do. I, I knew eventually I wanted to do church planting, and I wanted to do church planting out west. So, <clears throat> but I was, I was 24 years old, graduating from seminary, and was getting some calls to candidate at churches to be their pastor. And at 24 years old, seemed kind of young to be a senior pastor at a church. So I went in and talked to Dr. Jordan. How many, anybody here, old, some of the faculty members, old enough to have met Dr. Chief? I went in to talk to him. Now, you have to understand Dr. E.R. Jordan. He's about this tall, bald as an egg, great big thick glasses, tattoos on his arms because he was in the Navy before he got married. He was the, and his voice too, he was the personification of Popeye. <laughs> it's just what he was. You, you put a black suit and tie on Popeye and that's you got Dr. Jordan. <clears throat> And so I, uh, I went in to talk to him, and I said, you know, chief, we all called him chief. He was a chief in the Navy, and he was still chief till the day he died. Um, I said, I, I'm getting some calls to, to pastor a church. How old do you need to be to be a pastor of a church? He says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, eventually I'd like to go out west and start a church. And he looked at me, and he said, never too young to start a church. Where do you want to go? And from that point on, we started the process of looking into western cities to start churches and we ended up in the Phoenix metropolitan area. So we come out to Arizona, 24 years old, start church, be began doing the work. Uh, you know, I, I had never been on a pastoral staff before. I had never been a pastor before and here I am starting a brand new church. I got the book, uh, I think there was a book by, from Baptist Midmissions about how to start churches and it had all the details and so, you know, all the stuff you need to get together and I'm going through the list and getting the stuff for the nursery and the, the offering place, you know, all those details because it's just, it's just a lot of work. All of this stuff and I'm, I'm focusing on, on ministry and then, you know, then you got to preach. One of my mentors over the years was Dr. David Sproul. Mike Sproul and I were friends growing up, and I spent a lot of time at their house because their house was closer to school than, <clears throat> than mine was. And so uh, we, uh, Mike and I would spend late nights talking theology with his dad. 
And so I learned a lot in those late night conversations. But I remember him coming the very first Sunday night we had a service. And I preached and I really just blew the invitation. I mean, I just, it just, and I, I apologized to him on the way out about it. And he, he said, well, you'll do better. And you know, that, you know, it was just, you know, early in the ministry, making all those mistakes. So working hard, going hard. Um, IBC called me. I had my MDiv. They said, we would like you to teach. And so you needed, needed a little extra income starting a church. So I began teaching some homiletics classes. In my, my first homiletics class at IBCS, I had this, this fairly young, pretty sharp, go-getting student by the name of Mike Reddick. And so, um, you know, I had these, these students in my class and, uh, and we began moving forward and they paid me by allowing me to take doctoral classes. So I ended up, ended up getting my doctor of ministry. But here I am, seven, eight, nine years in the ministry now. Church is going pretty well. Church is growing. Everything seems to be okay. I've gotten my bachelor's degree and a master of divinity and now a doctorate. And something was still wrong. I mean, something was wrong in me. I knew personally I, I wasn't where I should be spiritually. Now, it, it, it wasn't that there were these major sins dominating me, but there was, there was just something missing. Now, we, we were talking about this, Brother Jim and um, <clears throat> Brother Wayne, we were talking about this over the years, and I've talked with, it with, with um, Brother John Van Geldren as well. No one really talked about a theology of sanctification much as I was growing up. We, really, we just really didn't talk about it. You know, get this, read your Bible, get this right, do these things right, and that's what you're supposed to do. In fact, the Christian school movement, it, it was kind of like that. If you, if you get good grades, you study hard, you keep all the rules, then you're right. You're, you're good. I, I went to college, and we're, you know, I'm taking... It's psychology classes in college, and you have strategies for how you're dealing with certain sin, certain sin issues. We, Dr. Fremont, bless his heart, had us read Richard Shelley Taylor's uh, The Disciplined Life, and so, you know, I'm, the way to Christian maturity is through discipline. You know, I just, need, I just need to be more disciplined. I remember we, I came to the point early in ministry where I needed to hire a secretary. And that was, that's always a tough thing when you're a young pastor to hire a full-time secretary. And so there, there was this um, family that had just started coming to our church and she had been a uh, church secretary in another church. And the, the blessing of it was she was old enough to be my mother. But she's just a very godly woman. Her name was Joe Purdy. And uh, so she came and I did the interview and I was asking her about some things. She says, I have one question for you. She says, what do you believe about Christian maturity? I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, she said, do you believe that, you know, you're supposed to do all of these things to be mature in Christ? Or do you believe the Christian life ought to flow out of the relationship that you have with God? And I said, well, of course, it's the second one. Now, in my head, yeah, of course, that makes sense. In my life, it wasn't real. I, it sounded good. 
It sounded like, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be, but I had no sense about what it meant. And so um, I knew that there was something wrong. We began talking about it. Um, actually, it was not long after that. We had um, John Van Gelderen for meetings. We were having discussions about it at the time. It was not long after that. We had the Reddicks come and, you know, I, so I, and there was this, this big, it was right at the same time we had the Troy Conference. And so I was in this searching process at that moment and trying to understand and doing some reading. And there, there came a moment, and it was a really interesting moment. I had this little tiny Ford Ranger truck, and the Reddicks had come to do a missions conference for us or something like that. Something fell. Um, so the Reddicks had come to, I, maybe they were candidating to go to the mission field, and uh, I think they were back on a, on a furlough or something. And um, we had myself and then Mike in the middle and Lisa Reddick all squeezed into this little cab of the Ford truck as I took them to lunch. We came back and we were having this discussion. I was talking about being spirit-filled and trying to understand that, that concept of walking with the Lord. And, and I don't remember even what I said that prompted it, but I remember Lisa getting this look on her face like, Oh, there's something here he doesn't get. And she leaned forward, we we're talking about spirit filling, and she looked at me and she said, you do realize you are or you aren't, don't you? And it was that moment that it clicked, that I finally now, that doesn't mean that I knew or understood everything at that moment. I am still learning. But it was at that moment there were certain things that finally started to make a difference. And God began at that moment to do a transforming work in my life with regard to walking in the Spirit. I remember laying in bed with my wife talking about this till late at night as, as we were both learning these things together. Now, it's interesting, as my kids have grown up, this has just been normal for them. This is just the way they understood things. But there was a whole generation of us where the Holy Spirit just himself was not mentioned much. I think there are some reasons. First of all, there was a reaction to the charismatic movement. There was, a, there was a previous generation that understood revival, they understood walking in the Spirit, they understood all of these things, but they didn't talk about it quite as much because you know, the Charismatics had totally misunderstood this. The second thing is I don't think that there was the rise of the Christian school movement, and for many people they thought the Christian school was the, was the answer to all the sanctification problems that they were facing with their children. If we just put kids in a Christian school and we give them good rules, everything will turn out okay. And so we, we had that, we had some other things we've talked about, uh, counseling philosophy that leaves out the Holy Spirit and all of those things. So here, here's the issue. I had, a, I had a theological piece that was missing. And that, and that made a difference in the outworking of my Christian life. Now, you are in a different situation here. You're getting teaching on this stuff all the time. But it's still possible for you to misunderstand. 
It's still possible for you to not get it right. And, and there are all different kinds of ways in which we can get things wrong. For instance, in a spiritual awakening conference, we can spend, you can spend so much time focusing upon yourself. My pastor growing up used to call that spiritual navel-gazing. We, we, become so, we become so focused upon ourselves. Uh, and you, you can become focused in yourselves in an arrogant way, or you know the person that's always down on themselves and always feels bad and always guilty. You can do that in a negative way, which is still a form of selfishness. It's thinking of yourself much more highly than you ought to think. So let's just take some time to lay the foundation here. It might take me two messages to get through this particular one, but that's okay. So let's start. What is our goal? What is our goal in sanctification? We have um, these two verses. It's interesting in this particular verse. Um, the Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonians says this in verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Wherein he called, you say, wait a minute. Paul, didn't you get that wrong? Didn't, isn't he saying, Shouldn't he be saying he's chosen us to sanctification through salvation, not salvation through sanctification? Right? Doesn't salvation come first, then sanctification? Isn't it salvation that makes sanctification possible? But here's what he is saying. He says, I have chosen you to what? To salvation through sanctification. Wait a minute. How in the world is that working? Now, I want you to understand something about your salvation. You're saved, but you're not completely saved yet. You say, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you mean I can lose it? No, 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 no. I'm not talking about you can lose it. Here's what I'm saying. You don't have everything that your salvation will eventually bring you yet. We had a dear lady that was a friend of my mother's. She died of cancer a few years ago. When they put her in the casket, she had asked that they put a fork in her hand. She knew she was going to die, so she, 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 they put the fork in her hand. I said, why does that? She says, well, you know when you're at lunch, with, 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 you know, and they say, save your forks? That means that there's always something good coming yet. You know, there's going to be that day when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruption puts in, on, in corruption, and I will have all the benefits of my salvation then. And so we have this salvation, and then we have this, and the sanctification, this setting apart process, which results in our ultimate, sal ultimate salvation. In other words, all of this stuff is connected it all goes together, my salvation, my sanctification, my ultimate salvation. And so th there is this process that is going on. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. 
Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, serious, hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, salvation, ultimate salvation. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves, according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. If ye call on the Father, who without respect to persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, spot who verily has foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another, with a pure heart fervently. Now, there are a couple of things that I want you to understand about sanctification here. Number one, there is, we have reasons for sanctification. The reason is that we want to be holy like He is holy, but we also, this sanctification looks forward. It says, gird up the loins of your their mind, gird up the loins of your mind for the grace, because you want to be like you will be at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul. You remember what he said? Philippians chapter three, Paul says, I, you know, he's looking forward, what, unto the high calling. The idea of that word high is upward. I think it's talking about the rapture. The upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm not there already, but that's, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. My longing in this life is to be, is to, is to follow the standard for what I will be in my ultimate salvation and in my ultimate sanctification. And so this is our goal, complete holiness, com complete Christ-likeness. You say, well, good, I, I, I want to be there tomorrow. We understand that we will fall, but we don't have to fall. It's, this, this is throughout the New Testament in 1 John. John says, my, 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I write into these things, I write these things unto you that you sin not. The idea there is not even once. But and if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And so sanctification is possible. We talk, so this, this is this Christ-likeness that we're seeking for. What does the term sanctify mean? It means to set apart, to be holy, to be set apart or separate um, from that which is unholy. A saint is a person who is called by God and responds to salvation is set apart in, in plan and purpose. So we talk about, okay, so we have salvation which is associated with my new birth in Jesus Christ. It gives me certain benefits and privileges now. And then there are future benefits and privileges that I get in salvation. And then we have this sanctification that is usually associated with the Christian life. But there are, theologically speaking, three types of sanctification. Let's, you probably know them. This is Theologic, you know, theology 101, but let's just talk about them for a moment. There is positional sanctification. 
where I am set apart, I am sanctified in Christ. Positional sanctification happens at the moment of salvation. I am in a new position in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. And he's talking about all of these various sins. I do think that this is fascinating. No, I, I think I ought to go back to this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, those who have been involved in sexual sin, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Have that kind of stuff today? Cross-dressing, gender confusion, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's what he says, and such were some of you. Don't you ever forget that God can save everyone. God can transform lives. Now, I know in fundamental churches, and there are people in fundamental churches that are saved out of the worst types of lifestyles. They don't normally stand up in a testimony meeting and give that as you know, that particular aspect of their testimony as part of their, um, their joining a church or something like that. But God saves people. God transforms people. God can save anyone. Now notice what he says though. Such were one of you, but he says you are washed, what? And you are right now sanctified. You say, well, yes, you're being sanctified. No, you are sanctified. You are set apart. You are different now is what he's saying. This is positional sanctification. You are, you belong to a new person. You are now God's. You are set aside for your future full sanctification. All right, it's position in Christ. It occurs at the moment of salvation. It continues unchanging. It, it, it has consequences that, that being set aside for Christ has consequences. I have the Holy Spirit. It is associated with being a saint. We, we talk about a saint as a holy one. And the saints are not special believers like the Roman Catholic Church would teach us. Saints are Everybody who has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So you are, a saint is the sanctified one. And that you got at the moment of salvation. So we have positional sanctification. Let's talk about the second one. And the second one we'll call progressive sanctification. Now this term progressive sanctification is the sanctification that goes on throughout the Christian life. And I will get to a further explanation of this in just a moment. But we have this progressive sanctification described, for instance, in um, Philippians 1.6. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God, when God starts something in you, he keeps doing it in you. I'm not saying there's no such thing as backsliding. <laughs> there is backsliding. I've seen it. There is no such thing as backsliding without consequences. God always tends to his children. There is such thing as a sin unto death. 
where you refuse and you refuse and refuse until he just says, enough, I'm taking you home. And I not only think I see examples of that in Scripture, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, those that were abusing the Lord's table, uh, Acts chapter 5, we see examples of that in Scripture. And so, and I think I've seen examples of that in ministry over the years. And so there is backsliding, but there's no such thing as backsliding without consequences. There is, there is this progressive experiential growing in Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. If I'm spirit-filled and you said Lisa Reddick leaned forward and she said you either are or you aren't, how do you have progressive if you are or you aren't? We'll explain that in a, little mo in a moment. It begins, by the way, at the moment of salvation. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, the Apostle Paul is describing this concept of progressive sanctification. He says here, not as though I have already attained. He says, I'm not, I'm not perfect yet. He says, if, now well, let's take a look at verse 11. That gives us the context. He says, if by any means, he says, I'm, I want to know Christ. I'm, I'm pushing. I want to know Christ. I want to know. He said that I, if any of my means I might attain what? Under the resurrection of the dead. If I, I, I want to be like I will be in the resurrection. He says, I'm not there yet. Not as though I've already attained that. I'm not there. If the Apostle Paul hadn't reached perfection, I think it's a good chance that you won't either. Okay? Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Or but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended in Christ Jesus. Do you understand something? God didn't save you to keep you out of hell. God saved you so that you might become everything that he has for you in Christ Jesus. This is, by the way, that is... Um, predestination. It's interesting. When you look at the, the verses talking about predestination, they're talking about being predestined to be what? Conformed to his image. It's his plan for our ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we have progressive or experiential sanctification. And then, of course, we have the ultimate sanctification, Ephesians chapter 5. Just turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This wonderful passage of Scripture that I seem to... You know, I just did a wedding on Saturday, was in this passage of Scripture. Again, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself for it, that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. Ultimate sanctification. Ultimate sanctification is future. It is accomplished. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruption puts on incorruption. So three aspects of sanctification. Positional, moment of salvation. Progressive, happening during the Christian life. Ultimate sanctification at the moment of the resurrection of the body or death. Now, let's talk about um, the power of sanctification just for a moment. Um, God is the power of sanctification, not us. By the way, when we start looking, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we, we talk about the Holy Spirit in sanctification, but it is fascinating to see in Scripture that we'll see all three persons of the Trinity involved in this process of sanctification. 
And so there is a special emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5. It says in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Be not drunk with wine where it is excess, what? But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be, be controlled, be filled with the Spirit. We go to Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 8 is full of the idea of the empowering glorious work of the Holy Spirit of God in sanctification. We cannot be timid about talking about the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So notice this, the power of sanctification is not in the flesh. You cannot do this on your own. In other words, this is what Joe Purdy was getting at. There's no way I can live the Christian life like I ought without a relationship and without remaining in a right relationship with the God who empowers the living that I have to, have to do. So, so everything flows out of relationship. Do you remember those little songs? I, you know, all of a sudden I'm going back to these songs that I'm listening to as a kid. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, you know. And but but I grew up with, you know, okay, I gotta read the Bible and I gotta pray, and God will be happy with that because that checked those things off the list. That's how we were thinking. Because we got the list of these things. Read your Bible, because that's righteousness. Pray, because that's righteousness. Don't tell lies, don't get angry, do all your homework, obey your parents, check all those things off the list. Okay, I'm good. I had a young man one time in our church. Our youth pastor was challenging them, the teens, to have their devotions regularly. And he was a, a very highly disciplined young man. And so he said, okay, Pastor, Pastor Scott, I'll do it. Now, this is, he's highly disciplined, physically disciplined, just one of those people. It's, if you're like that, very self-disciplined, you can be in dangerous ground. Because, it's, because it is easy to substitute your self-discipline for spirituality. He did, for instance, he did one of these things. He, he, did, he ran from the rim of the Grand Canyon to the river, to the other rim, to the river, and back up in 24 hours. That's the kind of physical self-discipline that Eddie had. Here's what he did. He said, Pastor Scott... I have now, now done my devotions, read my Bible every day for a year, and it did nothing for me. Well, if, it, if you're just checking something off, off the list, it will do nothing for you. Why? Because the purpose of the reading is a relationship. I mean, you're not just reading the words. You're reading the words to have a relationship with God. Now here, so, because it is the power of God in that relationship that produces change in my life. Now, there are two aspects of, of, of sanctification, of progressive sanctification I want to mention. And we'll come back and expand these a little bit further. I will call them health and maturity. This, I was really helped with this by um, um, John Walvert. I was reading something by John Walvert on this, and it was really helpful. Here's what he said. 
In the middle, this progressive sanctification has two things. There is spiritual maturity and there's spiritual health. And there are a lot of people that will focus on spiritual health but not focus on spiritual maturity. There are many that will focus on spiritual maturity but they, will, but they won't focus on spiritual health. Think of it this way. Um, and by the way, turn with me to, a few, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This will help us because the Apostle Paul deals with the confusion of, uh, deals with the, these both in this passage. He says, and brethren, I could not speak unto you as spiritual but as carnal, even as babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither now are ye able to bear it, for you're yet carnal. He's saying, now here's what he is saying. You're immature and unhealthy. Now, here is the idea. I, you can have a brand new Christian who knows very little about the Christian life. They don't know much about Bible doctrine. They don't know much about um, Christian living. There are all kinds of things that are going on in their life. They're brand new. They're brand new. They're saved. And they're right with God. They're surrendered to the Spirit in as much as they know in their life. You can have a Christian who's been saved for 30 years. They know how to share the gospel with people. They know how to have their devotions. They have lots of the Bible memorized. And they can be totally spiritually unhealthy. You can have a baby Christian who is, you know, immature and unhealthy or immature and healthy. You can have a mature believer that is mature and healthy or mature and unhealthy. What is Christian maturity? Christian maturity has to do with our knowledge the habits that we've developed, the skills and abilities that we have developed in handling the word, in understanding the word, in, in knowing what you're supposed to do at certain points in the Christian life. But, but spiritual health has to do with the vibrancy of my relationship with God. And what we have, I think, in, especially in Baptist fundamentalism, is a lot of people who have some Christian maturity, but they're unhealthy. And often what revival is happening, especially in mature contexts, where there have been churches that have been established for a long time, is you have people with all this knowledge and all this, all this ability, but they've not been living it. They're not walking in fellowship. And there is this wonderful surrendering anew to the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And so those two things help me a lot. The, the difference between spiritual health and spiritual maturity. We're going to go on and talk about, um, in my next session, false views or wrong views of sanctification. But hopefully this will help us to get started thinking about the right way um, what sanctification is or what it's supposed to be. Let's, um, let's stand together and have a word of prayer.